Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Stranger, tell the Lacedaemonians that we lie here obedient to their words. So read, Herodotus tells us, an engraving on a memorial commemorating the Spartans who died at Thermopylae, fighting a Persian army that ridiculously outnumbered them. That defeat has become one of the most famous battles in history, probably the best-known battle of the ancient world. But who were these Spartans who seemingly committed suicide? How had they been brought to that, up to that point? What was the society into which they were born, the culture that curbed and directed them? What did they love? What did they hate? These and other questions are the focus of Andrew Bayless's new book, The Spartans, which summarizes, synthesizes, and adroitly assesses a mass of scholarship to provide us with a vision of what was Sparta. Dr. Andrew Bayless is Senior Lecturer in Greek History in the Department of Classics, Ancient History, and Archaeology at the University of Birmingham. He first remembers living of the 300 Spartans and their stand at Thermopylae when he was 12. Andrew Bayless, welcome to Historically Thinking. Well, thank you very much for inviting me to talk to you today. Well, um, you begin your excellent uh, uh, history uh, for OUP, one of their, I think they're not the concise histories, but one of their uh, shorter histories, um, with what you refer to as the Spartan Mirage. So what is the Spartan Mirage? Because I want to keep an eye on that as we, as we progress through our conversation. Okay, well, the Sparta Mirage is a term that was coined in the 1930s to describe the problem we have in with our primary sources for Sparta. Uh, to put it bluntly, almost none of our sources are Spartan in origin. They're actually outsiders talking about Sparta. And the bulk of our sources are actually uh, later than the time period that we want to be looking at as well. So the problem we have is that our it's not like a lot of history. If we want to know about 5th century Athenians, we've got thousands and thousands and thousands of things that we can read written by classical Athenians about Athens, whereas Sparta, we're dealing with the outsider's view. And the problem we have is not just that it's the outsider's view, is that that outsider's view is not necessarily as trustworthy as we would like it to be. And there's a question as whether our sources are reflecting what Sparta was really like or what outsiders wanted to believe Sparta was like or potentially what the Spartans wanted outsiders to think they were like. So that's that's the Spartan Mirage in a nutshell. A good example of that would be the Battle of Thermopylae. Mm -hmm. Did the Battle of Thermopylae really take place as it was described by our non-Spartan sources? Uh, did the Spartans fight resolutely for two and a half days without break in the way that our primary sources report it? Or would it have actually been quite a different uh, campaign, so to speak? So uh, the question that has been asked recently is, were the Spartans keen to deliver a very Spartan message about the Battle of Thermopylae? And was that why the two survivors of the Battle of Thermopylae had to be eliminated effectively because they could have presented a view of Thermopylae that didn't make the Spartans look as good as we would, as they would have actually looked if you found out what had really happened? Wow, that, that, that's cynical. Um, 
That's uh, that's so so basically the Spartan Mirage is all the problems of classical history in terms of evidence, but even more so. Yeah, it's an amplified version of what we have. So um, so ancient history is always um, a, a limited amount of sources. There's not a great archive of correspondence that you can delve into, like in uh, modern history or even medieval history. You're always dealing with fragments, but Sparta is even more fragmentary. But well, you, you've dealt with some of those only existing Spartan sources, which are of all things songs and hymns. Could you could you explain that? Because it's a fascinating it's a fascinating source. It's a fascinating record. Yeah, the the, the go to when ninety nine percent certain he was Spartan source we have is the <laughs> uh, the poet Tateus. I say ninety nine percent certain he was Spartan because later tradition had it that he was Athenian. And that was partly because the Spartans were, were illiterate, so how could they have produced a, a functioning poet? Uh, so that's, a, that's an example of the barrage in itself. Uh, Tateus's poetry was, um, well, was produced around 650 BCE, about the time that the Spartans were trying to secure their conquest of their neighbours, the Messenians, who would become the Helots, who became their, uh, their servile uh, workers who were the basis of their whole society and and the the poetry that we have that is the earliest quotation of it is from the 300s BCE so already it's 300 years after it was it was first produced uh, the latest versions of them are in Byzantine uh, period documents um, the preserved fragments are very very martial uh, so they have wonderful lines like it's a beautiful thing when a good man fights and dies in the front line uh and uh sort of lines like uh, i wouldn't raid a man if he was uh as um, fast as the north wind or if he was as strong as a cyclops i'd only rate him if he could uh, stand the heat of battle for want of a better way of putting it and so this is poetry that spartans were taught uh through in childhood plato describes the spartans as being filled up with the poetry of Tateus, and there was a competition for the best recital of Tateus's poetry um, at the king's tent uh, before any major um, battle, uh, mm. and whoever did the best version of Tateus got a prize of uh, an extra piece of meat, which would have been a big deal uh, in combat. So um, extra calories always make a difference. Modern soldiers always complain about not having enough to eat. So the Spartans had their competition that gave uh, the best the best version of Tateus an extra portion of food. Uh, and this is, this is just, it, they seem to reflect very Spartan values that way. So this is um, very helpful um, because this is from 650 BC is incredibly, incredibly old written evidence to come from that, that early. Um, I think I'm right that this is, uh, you know, Homer, whoever Homer was, quote unquote, comes from sometime maybe before that, but by a century. But, you know, 650 BC ain't bad. Uh, we're, we're, in the, we're in the world of Homer. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. There is a question mark about that, who, whether, who came first, Tateus or Homer, because there are lines that are so similar. So yeah. some, some scholars say that Homer must have come first and Tateus copied him. Whereas there are some experts out there who suggest that uh, that Homer followed Tateus in that way. I have no opinion one way or the other on that one. <laughs> so that's so unusual for a classical historian. But um, let's uh, but let's talk about another person um, with quotation marks around their name, like Hergus. Now, 
you make quite clear uh, throughout the book that you don't think Lycurgus existed, um, but the Spartans seem to have think have thought that he existed. Um, so I'm interested in talking about the Spartan, the person whom the Spartans thought existed, um, and 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 what they thought he did um, as a way of describing how they had they had come into being. So can can we can we go through that? Like what did they what did they attribute to him? Yeah. Okay. So, look, Lycurgus is known as the lawgiver in Sparta, and the tradition that is reported to us in classical and later sources was that Lycurgus founded the entire Spartan way of life, uh, and this is something that uh, the earliest clear reference to Lycurgus is in Herodotus, and he says that Lycurgus went to Delphi. Uh, he got the constitution of uh, Sparta from the oracle at Delphi, direct from Apollo, and that's why the Spartans were the way they were. The reason I suggest he's not a real person, uh, and I'm not on my own on this one here, no, is the tradition of Lycurgus is one that uh, shifts and changes quite dramatically, and Lycurgus is fixed around 900 BCE. He also allegedly was there at the foundation of the Olympic Games in 776 BCE. So he can't quite work in terms of chronology. And there's no hint of Lycurgus in the surviving fragments of Tateus's poetry, which mm -hmm. makes it hard to imagine that, uh, that at that stage, Lycurgus was thought to have existed. At that stage, later on, Spartans remembered Lycurgus as the uh, as the founder of their entire way of life, he's also supposed to have redivided all the land of um, Laconia around Sparta into equal plots of land, so that you have all of the Spartans having equal wealth and having this wonderful society. But that kind of takes away the need for them to conquer Messenia. If they didn't need a redistribution of land because Lycurgus had already done it, they wouldn't have needed to conquer the Messenians. So there's uh, there's sort of historical reasons for doubting the existence yeah. of an so actual We've, we've got the historical Lycurgus. He's dead. All right. I, 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 I hear the rosewood stake being driven into his heart. Okay. Um, <laughs> but, but again, the Spartans found it important, apparently, mm -hmm. I might, I'm, I'm, this is not my period, but they found it important to attribute an extraordinarily, if I may say, an extraordinary complex society um, to this guy. So what, besides the dividing land into equal bits, they attribute their, their sort of lack of, of, their, of money, um, their sort of imposition of poverty, the, the entire warrior class, they all attribute this to him. So what, what's the sort of, what are the things that they say came from him? Well, it's their entire way of life is is down to Lycurgus. So you're right. The, the the fact that they don't use gold and silver currency is attributed to Lycurgus. Uh, that is another one that doesn't work in terms of history because Lycurgus, either place that they position him, they position him before Greeks would have used gold or silver currency. So this is a projecting backwards um, uh, by the by the classical period Spartans. Um, it's in their entire way of life, the, the military culture, everything is attributed to Lycurgus. And what we're dealing with there really is a concept that um, historians of different eras use of cultural memory. Mm -hmm. uh, the Spartans clearly 
of later periods remembered that Lycurgus had done all of this. At some point in time, there may have been a Lycurgus who did some sort of reforming, and then everything that happened later gets projected back onto Lycurgus as the lawgiver. And in a society like Sparta, where following the rules is so important, having a lawgiver who set everything up makes it easier for conformity to become the norm there. So uh, it's there's no danger of reform or anything like that because well like Hergus did it uh, mm -hmm. so it becomes set in stone yeah that, that seems really important to me that, that we'll, we'll talk about this conformity to law is at, at the heart of what it means to be a, a Spartan um, so let's talk about this complexity of this society um, could you uh, enumerate I have so many notes of I, I think I'm, I've lost track of the number of different sort of classes and groups within Spartan society so but let's start who's at the top Okay, the top are the Spartan citizens themselves, somewhere at their maximum 6,500 to 9,000. They're sometimes called the Spartiati. Uh, they're sometimes more normally called the Homoioi, which uh, sometimes gets translated as peers or equals, but I'm increasingly becoming favorable to translating them as similars because they're not similars. really equal, but they give the impression of being equal. So there's only, as you say, and this is worth repeating that at its height there's only 6,500 to 9,000 of them. That's right, yeah. yeah. Uh, and the, and these are, them, these oh, are people that you refer to as um, as citizen soldiers. That's right, yeah. I, I, I think of them uh, just a, a, almost really as soldier citizens. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, uh, that the emphasis is uh, you're only a citizen if you're a soldier. Um, That's there's right, not, yeah. you know, I mean, it's not, it's not the other way around where citizens are expected, like in Roman Republic, expected to be soldiers from time to time. Yeah, so citizenship and military service in all of the ancient Greek cities is, uh, is, is, um, is the norm. So there, there isn't really a distinction between civic and military in that way, because all of the citizens will be the military at some point in time. The thing that's unique about Sparta in the Greek world is that they're, all the citizens have a basic level of wealth that allows them to fight as a, as a, as a heavily armed foot soldier, whereas poorer citizens in a city like Athens would have fought as they could. So that might mean rowing in the fleet or it might mean serving as a light armed soldier, whereas in Sparta, they're all wealthy enough to be a hoplite and, and be able to afford that 32 kilos of bronze armor and, and fight in the front line. And wealthy enough to train. And wealthy enough to train, exactly. Well, they, they, they're not meant to have a job. So even, yeah, even in a wealthy a hoplite simply uh, couldn't have that, take the time to train that the uh, the the, the Spart no I can't the Spartiates that yeah. uh, would 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 have would have took the time to do but we'll, we'll get to that in a second uh, yeah, below the Spartiates and, and these are the only the only Spartiates are citizens they That's only right, they yeah. get a vote in the overall assembly yep they're the only ones who have the vote they're the only ones who who get to call themselves citizens proper okay below them another class the who are they? Well, you've got the perioikoi beneath them. Okay. Now, they're three uh, members of communities that live around the city of Sparta. 
So that and that's what their name means. The perioikoi, it's peri means around, and and oikoi is those who are living. So it's uh, the people living around the Spartans. They have their own communities. Uh, they are free to do what they like within their own communities, uh, but they are politically subordinate to the Spartans. So they have no independent foreign policy. They have to do what the Spartans require them to do. Weirdly, together with the Spartan citizens, they are referred to, to by the outside world as the Lacedaemonians. So they share the same geographic label as the Spartans. And so they're sometimes called sort of second-rate citizens or something along those lines because they're almost citizens, but they're not quite. So Spartiates, to make it this geographically, they occupy the, yeah. this place, the city of Sparta or the Vale of Sparta? Well, there's a uh, there's a city of Sparta, but does uh, the the Eurotas Valley sometimes becomes sort of synonymous with Sparta mm-hmm. itself? And then the Perioikoi are from are at a far are farther away than the Euro. They're surrounding the Eurotas, or are they also in the Eurotas? They're they're in the Eurotas Valley and the surrounds of that region. So their 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 communities are around the whole region of Laconia. So and they and some or all of them will join the Spartan army, although they're not Spartiates. Yeah, the wealthiest of the Perioikoi uh, will fight as hoplites like the Spartan citizens. So mm. on a certain level, the communities of Perioikoi operate like a lot of city-states elsewhere in Greece, where they'll have some wealthy men who can afford to fight as hoplites, some poor men who would not really be able to ever do that. Many, they, they perform a lot of the trades. Um, they'll, they'll be... Um, They'll be um, trading with the outside world as well. Is there anyone else, uh, who, who else to talk about as classes of free Spartans? Right? Is there anyone else left? Well, you could call the so-called inferiors free and, yes. and Spartans. So they're Spartans who have failed to maintain their citizen status. And where you'd put them in the pyramid of Spartan society depends on how high you would place the perioikoi in some ways. So we know that some Spartans lost their their full citizen status due to poverty. They were no longer able to um, maintain the wealth requirement to be a Spartan citizen. And therefore, they were relegated to this status of um, the, the hypomayones, which literally means the inferiors. Mm-hmm. Um they lost it because of wealth, uh, not because of cowardice, but simply because of wealth, which is... You know, no, they're, they're technically going to be in a different state from the so-called tremblers who had showed cowardice in battle and seem to have been degraded in some way, but that seems to be potentially something that happened as a temporary measure until essentially they've been able to redeem themselves. So is the rest of the bottom of the pyramid occupied by the helots yeah so uh so there, there are some other weird subclasses that uh, we could we could talk about yeah, but men, mention one or two because this is this uh, this is part of the fascinating thing about sparta for me is that well, i had never realized how many other i always thought it was spartiates and helots and that was it done uh, but right. it's a lot more interesting than that yeah, it is. I always tell my first-year students there's uh, there's the Spartiates, the Perioikoi, and the Helots. And then when I teach them in the third year, I say, in the first year I lied, there's so much more. <laughs> right. 
Yep. So, um, so I guess we probably should before we get to the helots. There are other nebulous groups. The most obvious one is the Mothakes. And when I was an undergraduate, it was pretty much agreed that the Mothakes were synonymous with another group of people known as the Nothoi, which literally means bastards. And that these were illegitimate sons of Spartiates with helot women. Uh, but increasingly, a new orthodox is presenting itself now, and that's perceiving the uh, the Mothakes as the children of um, the inferiors. Hmm. So that they are they are there. They have the right ancestry but they don't have enough wealth to become a Spartan citizen. And the primary sources make it clear that some Mothakes were educated alongside the boys of Spartan citizens as foster brothers, as the term they use. And it seems that if you were a Mothax, you might, if you played your cards right, end up being sponsored by a wealthier Spartan and actually be able to become a full Spartan citizen in your own right. And so sort of the next generation will have a second chance to to uh, to make good is, is how the Mothakes seem to work. And, and the Nelfoy, are they still different or...? The Nothoi is, I'm not sure. Uh, so for the book, I kind of said, this is what we used to think. The Nothoi, well, there's only a handful of references to them. So who these who these literally bastards are, we don't know. Maybe they really are the uh, the, the sons of um, of Spartiates and and Helot women, as was once thought. It's it's unclear. Yeah, well, in, in any, um, this is certainly... A, we, talked about this recently about the difference between societies with slaves and slave societies i think uh, we can certainly put sparta in the second category it is a slave society Um, absolutely and and in a slave society one of the most important points of law is what to do of the offspring of the of the enslaved and the free yeah and 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 i think because sparta has such strict yet slightly loose rules for citizenship there is that flexibility of uh, of someone changing status. So in in fifth century Athens, from four fifty one onwards, to be a citizen, you had to have a legitimate citizen father and a legitimate citizen mother. Whereas Sparta, the rules seem to have been a citizen father and you've gone through the upbringing. So so it would allow someone to change status um, quite quite significantly. Well, if you thought that was uh, complex, dear listeners, now let's talk about government, um, which makes uh, hist- historians of constitutionalism just, uh, they, they bliss out. This tickles all of their uh, zones uh, when they talk Spartan constitutionalism. So how does Spartan government uh, work? Uh, so Spartan government is um, what is often referred to in our ancient sources and modern modern works pick it up quite as a, as a very happy term to use as a mixed constitution because it has elements of what you could call monarchy uh elements of um aristocracy or a greek term oligarchy ruled by the few and as and, and a and a small element of democracy in that so anyone who knows the story of uh, 300 at thermopylae knows that there's a king in sparta uh, but uh, lots of people will have failed to notice, because they're often left out entirely, that uh, Leonidas had a co-king, 
uh, Leotokides. So there are two Spartan royal houses, different families producing two kings who will be on the throne at the same time. And, and do we know uh, why? Or is this just this is just like they just shrug and this is like Curtis? There's a mythical story, and the mythical story was one of the kings, or the first king, had two son, had twin sons. He died uh, before he could uh, choose to, to make a proper decision about this, and the mother refused to say which one was born first, uh, so that they had to have two royal houses as a result of that. Uh, that is almost certainly a fairy story. I've read it suggested that there might have been a power sharing arrangement as Spartan uh, power grew in Laconia and the city of Sparta absorbed um, the what became part of the city of Sparta five kilometers down the road is the is the town of Amaklai. It's been suggested that maybe the two royal family thing came because of sort of a deal between Sparta and Amaklai that they had two kings. Uh, the two royal families sort of tied things up. It's one of those weirdities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, of, of which there are so many in Sparta. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're, yeah, we're, 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 we're about to get to the, we're going to get weirder by the time this is over. Um, so there's there's two kings, and this seems to be, um, well, it does seem to me, uh, however this is created, it works really effectively as a balance of power within the Spartan state. Um, these kings are not... They're not absolute uh, rulers anyway, uh, even even if there weren't two of them. No, they have they have quite limited powers. Uh, they um, they they are allowed to lead armies. They have priestly roles, but they don't get to decide foreign policy. Uh, they um, they are actually closely watched, and uh, there's a. Uh, a monthly exchange of oaths of office where the kings have to swear that they will govern according to the laws hmm. uh, and the Spartan elected officials known as ephors swear an, a counterpart monthly oath that while ever the kings maintain their rule according to the laws, they will leave the kingship unshaken with the uh, very obvious threat that if the kings do the wrong thing, they will be uh, they will be in deep trouble. So, so the kings are very much... Um, their, their powers are kept very much under control, and it's counterbalanced also by the existence of a council of elders that they are part of. So, so there's, yeah, let's, uh, let's go to that next, the council of elders. Um, yeah. And that's not the same thing as the ephors, correct? No, that's different from the ephors, right, yeah. So we've got the council of elders, we've got the ephors, and then we've got the, I guess, the entire assembly of all Spartiates. That's so right, yeah. Let's, let's walk through those three. Yeah, so the Council of Elders, uh, the name sells, says it all, really. They're, they're, they're mature citizens. They have to be aged over 60. Uh, there are 28 of them, uh, and the council is made up of 30, including them and the two kings. So you could actually have quite a young man serving on the Council of Elders, which is one of those weird, weirdly Spartan things. Uh, they're elected from amongst the, uh, the the citizen population and elections in Sparta are wonderful. They're uh, organized by shouting. Uh, so uh, <laughs> there's no counting. The, 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 uh, the accounts of how the, uh, the elders were, were counted is, is quite brilliant, is that, that someone was uh, locked in a room with a with a uh, with a writing tablet, and he wrote down which number of the person people who were brought forward received the loudest shouting. Uh, so uh, there's plenty of p- potential for corruption there. Yeah. Um, 
so they they have um, a sort of a pre-scrutiny role when it comes to Spartan legislation. So decisions that are decided by the citizen assembly are effectively um, pre predetermined by the Council of Elders. They, they so if Sparta needs to go to war, the the um, the, the the Council of Elders would decide that this is an issue that needs to be decided by the citizen assembly. So then the citizen assembly would come together and and make its decision again by shouting. And the, the citizen assembly is essentially a yes, no kind of body. There's no, no, we don't like that uh, option. Can we have an option three? That's not really part of the way it works. And so basically, I mean, this is this is an all in favor I or nay assembly. I mean, in... pretty, pretty much so. Yeah. And there is a, there's a one good example of how it could be manipulated is in the 430s when Sparta went to war against Athens in the Peloponnesian War. Uh, the E4 put the uh, the decision before the, uh, before the assembly, and it was a bit unclear from the shouting whether Sparta wanted to go to war or not. So he actually made everyone move and had everyone who's in favour of going to war stand over there and everyone who's in favour of peace stand over there. And you can tell from the way this is described, it was very obviously, we're going to war, aren't we? Uh, <laughs> as in everyone who's in favour of war, go over there. Uh, so it was very much a sort of making people out themselves uh, as um, of what they wanted. Huh. And I guess that was the point then of, of, of shouting. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, to, it's it's a sort of a secret ballot. We call it the Australian ballot, the Spartan ballot. Um, <laughs> so, and finally, E fours. You mentioned them a couple times. Uh, we've got the council elders. We've got the the Spartiate assembly, assembly of all citizens, uh, and then the E fours. Who are the E fours? How are they elected? Yeah, the E fours. The are five annual elected officials, and their title means overseers, and they oversee uh, the the running of the Spartan state. Uh, and one of them is uh, the the year in Sparta is named after him. So it would be the year when Leonidas was E four would appear on official Spartan documents if if the E four was named the, the eponymous E four was named Leonidas. Uh, and um their powers are are quite diverse in different ways. So they are the ones who would um who would um, give the orders for an army to be called up. Uh and we've already talked about the exchange of oaths they have with uh with the Spartan kings uh, they, they, um, there's very clear reference in Diodorus to Leonidas discussing how he's selecting his 300 to take to, to uh, Thermopylae with the E4s. Uh, the E4s um, were in charge of, of a variety of different different things uh, throughout in, in in Spartan society, and it seems that the E4s would only serve once. Uh, so the 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 guesstimate that we have is that the vast majority of Spartan citizens would have served as an E4 during their lifetime because there's not that many Spartans and you need five every year. So so it's a, it's a it's a genuine democratic element within Spartan society, but it would be a big stretch to call Sparta a democracy, to say the least. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about the uh, the one of the parts of Sparta that. It's long fascinated, which is how one becomes a Spartiate. Um, myths and reality. Um, uh, to first be, be a Spartiate, I have to be the child of a Spartiate, a boy, a boy of a Spartiate. Is that the first thing that has to be true? 
Yep, that's correct. Yeah. And then, uh, so when when do I begin to be prepared for a life as a Spartiate, as a as a, as a Spartan citizen? You will start at age seven. How- so age seven, you will be your training will start, and on a certain level, your training won't finish until you're about thirty. But really, but you'll become a citizen at age eighteen. So seven to eighteen, you'll be you'll be trained and monitored. And so, what happens to me at age seven? Okay, at age seven, uh, you're enrolled in a grouping known as a herd, uh, and you're placed under the um, watch of an official known as the Pydenomos, whose name means boy herder. Uh, and the Pydenomos is, uh, is um, assisted by a staff of young men who are known as the whip bearers. Uh, and it's quite obvious from our primary sources that the whip bearers whipped Spartan boys a lot. And, and a recent survey of, uh, of the Spartan education suggested that every Spartan would have spent several decades being beaten by other Spartans. So it's a very coercive uh, training system. Okay. And um, what's the nature of my training beginning at seven? And how does it how does it change at all as I get older? I mean, what do I learn to do? What don't I learn to do? You, well, you learn at best functional literacy, it would appear, because uh, the Spartans develop a reputation from the out, in the outside world of being illiterate and innumerate. But the fact that almost every Spartan would have been an E4, and E4s were meant to send written messages uh, and receive written messages, it suggests that that might be overblown a little bit, and that Spartans probably learned to read and write a bit. Plutarch says they learn to write enough, which is often <laughs> often interpreted as meaning not very much, but everyone's enough is a bit different. What we think is enough is very different to what people would have thought was enough in the Middle Ages, which is different to what Romans would have thought or Egyptians would have thought. So the Spartans could have had an enough that was certainly enough to be able to read and write properly, but not write great works of literature. Uh, So uh, you'll also spend a lot of time doing um, physical training. So there's a lot of sport, running, jumping. Um, Spartans are supposed to not have shoes as part of the, during their training. So they will, um, they will get learn to sort of develop tough feet, but be able to walk in difficult terrain. Uh, There's, um, there's um, lots of, um, evidence of uh, not necessarily boxing but of of fist fighting uh there might have even been knife fighting as part of the upbringing as well uh it's a very very physical training and it gets and it gets more rigorous over time xenophon who um is said to have sent his sons to uh, sparta as a kind of finishing school praises the fact that it's Sparta around the time that uh, you get to sort of puberty around then they actually load the boys up with tasks so they have more to do to keep them busy Uh, and it's it seems to have been partly about just getting them developing a a very strong um, collective mentality because you have to you're in your herds you work together as teams in team sports you are encouraged to steal food uh, because they don't want you to get fat. Uh, so, um, so and, and Plutarch describes boys hunting in teams with uh, with uh, younger boys acting as lookouts and the older boys doing the food stealing. So it's a, it's a very communal upbringing. And you learn how to take a punch. Uh, you learn how to take a blow as well. 
mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you have to learn to 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 take a beating uh, and to be able to deliver a beating as well. Yeah, yeah. so lots of there's there's just um, there's um, there's there's clear references in to in Pluto, in Plato to to fist fights. Uh, Xenophon makes it clear that boys were beaten a lot, and mm. uh, and a later writer, Pausanias, describes this mass. Um, group brawl essentially where they were where they were led onto an island and they just tried to it worked in two teams to try and force one or other into the water and and Spartan ball sports have a, a very sort of uh, they're, they're a very they're, they're a contact sport they've mm-hmm. they're, they're a sort of a cross between uh, a, a variety of different sports but there's an there's uh, it's 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 not it's not like soccer. Uh, right. It's it's a very very heavy contact sport. And even um, there are some things that you said. Well, they, these don't seem to be very, very military. Um, choral singing and uh, dancing, but I think they are very military. I think uh, using their breath, learning how to use their breath, is um, fundamental to any athletic endeavor. Um, and uh, of course, dancing uh, in a group. Uh, well, choral singing also is another communal activity. Brilliant, brilliant communal activity. Working together in time. And of course, dancing is moving together in time, um, which it looks a lot like hot white fighting. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Choral choral dancing and 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 choral singing and the, and the coordinated dancing is absolutely vital training for the type of movement they will they will do as hot plates, where they have to move in sync with their fellow citizens and do so to to the accompaniment of, of pipe playing as well. And there's one of our later sources, uh, Philodemus, describes Spartan rehearsals uh, for, for choral performances, and he describes uh, a, a routine that, that was, was, was apparently common in Sparta where they actually moved one after the other following each other in a in a meandering line he sort of compares it to a string being being moved with the with them all like beads on a string and that's the kind of thing that would be of fundamental um uh use for men who are going to later on have to march in in line and suddenly form up uh into a into a phalanx as as when when an enemy appears out of nowhere, and Xenophon in his uh, uh, Constitution of the Spartans describes the manoeuvres of of a Spartan army on the march and describes how they were able to position themselves if an enemy appeared in front of them or on the left or on the right or behind them, and that kind of coordinated movement um, doesn't just come out of nothing. So, so this, yeah, this I agree with you entirely on that. An intense physical training, uh, which I mean, really, even to this day, is quite astonishing in the age of seven. They're really being trained in the age of seven to be our, the equivalent of our special operators, uh, commandos, whatever you want to call them. Um, it's, it's, it, when, you, when you think about all this, it's amazing they ever lost, um, given the length, the, the years and years and years of physical uh, training that, that went into their education. Yeah, I think uh, I think that, and that comes down to the, the sort of what you, the question you asked then, how do, why why do they ever lose and and are they when they're when they're described that way and i think that's one of the fundamental parts of the modern debate about what sparta was really like coming back mm-hmm. to that mirage yeah, exactly. because some modern scholars who are focusing on sparta are starting to say well were they really raised like that was it really a um a, an all day every day kind of upbringing 
uh, was, are we just getting sound bites that uh, that sound good uh, and sound like th that it, it will make a good story? And how much of this was the Spartans presenting themselves this way as well? Yeah, and we don't know. I mean, it, 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 something something didn't work a couple times, um, uh, but uh, it, it is uh, what we know of it is, is is extraordinary. It's also extraordinarily complex. That's the thing I can't quite work out. Um, is how if this is sort of this is an, a, a complex system is I mean is it am I wrong does this seem to me more complex than even a Thebian democracy I mean this is just a very complex system that they in their government in their uh, in their class system in in their in their training. I, I don't think you're wrong to say that it's more complex than than certainly some aspects of other Greek city-states at the time, but it's I think it's more complicated but more manageable on a certain level because of the number of them. Mm -hmm. So at the, the time that Athens is vying with Sparta for leadership of the Greek world, there are 30,000, 40,000 Athenian citizens where at that stage there's probably really only 5,000 Spartan citizens. So training everyone the same way, I think, is more manageable when it's such a smaller number than that. So Athens is, is more haphazard in that way because there's, there's more people and there isn't that state um, control of the training system. And in terms of managing a meeting of the Athenian assembly versus the Spartan assembly. The Athenian assembly, everyone is scattered around the Athenian polis territory. Some people will be doing other jobs. They'll be working on their own land. They just won't be interested in showing up. Whereas the Spartans, all of them are meant to be living around the city. So if there's a meeting of the Spartan assembly, they all just show up. And it's so it's um, it's like a big uh, council rather than a small assembly on a certain level. Mm -hmm. Certainly, a Spartan citizen numbers go down. Attentive listeners will notice that we have not mentioned women. Uh, Spartan uh, citizens are men. Um, and yet, throughout ancient Greece, Spartan women have a reputation for being, uh, for being the boss, for being bossy, authoritative, and sexually licentious. So um, let's talk about Spartan women. Um, as I take it, your main message is the the main job really of a Spartan woman is to breed Spartans. Yeah, I think, and I think I, I express, I, I sort of pressed that in the book, partly because Spartan women have this wider reputation today, I think, as a, Sparta can be seen as a bit of a, a feminist utopia, if you want to see it that way, because Spartan women are, they have a degree of freedom that is uh, extremely unusual at the time. They have rights that are, unusual until comparatively recently. Spartan women almost certainly uh, inherited land equally alongside uh, men. Uh, Spartan women have a voice. There are 39, 40 recorded sayings by Spartan women. And in a time when the norm was for women to be very much um, sub subordinate to men, I mean, Aristotle describes silence as a woman's virtue. Uh, and he was not alone in thinking that. Um, so uh, Spartan women having a voice uh, makes them 
very remarkable in, in ancient history. Uh, and the universal inheritance in Sparta makes Sparta um, unique until comparatively recently. Um, it's still not normal for women to own property and their own right universally today. Uh, so, uh, so Sparta is quite um, special in that way. But at the same time, for all of those freedoms that Sparta women had, uh, their primary role in like Hergen Sparta, for want of a better way of putting it, it was to produce the next generation of Spartans. That's why they were trained physically like the boys. It was so that they would grow up to be big and strong, the thinking being that they would be more likely to have stronger children who would grow up to be better Spartan soldiers. So, so their their main role was was as a, as a mother of warriors. So the there is a eugenics purpose to this. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one thing that just comes out bluntly in the primary sources. Xenophon says everywhere else in the Greek world, uh, women are kept inside uh, and do tasks like weaving, whereas at Sparta, they did the polar opposite and had women outside exercising. Yeah, I was. Uh, I tried some of those exercises the other day in the gym. The uh, kick up your heels to hit. Yeah, that's uh, that's better than a burpee. And the idea that you can kick up your heels to hit your buttocks a thousand times. Um, yeah, that, that would be hard work. That's that's a lot like work. Yeah, it really is. Um, the uh, what's the role of the queen? Um, and partly, I, I suppose, um, because of Herodotus, we know a lot about Queen Gorgo. Um, that's that seems to give the impression that queens are have an extremely uh, powerful influence on their kings. Is that is that just the accident of having Herodotus, or do we have any evidence that the queens have a have an important role, if not written down, but an actual important role? It's not really obvious beyond a few a few key examples, uh, and it's more the case that Spartan women. Ha were very obviously telling their men what to do. So the vast majority of the sayings of Sparta women are mothers uh, rebuking their sons for not measuring up to Spartan values. Uh, and Gorgo, uh, the preserved sayings of Gorgo, either in the sayings of the Spartan women or in Herodotus, are very much telling men uh, what they're doing wrong. So Herodotus reports Gorgo telling her father off uh, for putting himself in danger of being corrupted, uh, and later sources um, attribute sayings to Gorgo. Like the obvious one is uh, is, um, is 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 the is in the film Three Hundred, where Gorgo uh, supposedly says to Leonidas to come back with your shield or on it. Uh, but I, th I think Gorgo is definitely a standout, and it has been suggested that one of the reasons Gorgo is a standout is that she might have been a source for Herodotus. Mm -hmm. That Herodotus travelled to Sparta. The time he was there, she would have been still alive as as the queen mother then. So he may have heard some of his. Leonidas's family stories from Gorgo herself, but there's no real sense that Spartan queens were the power behind the throne or anything like that. We often don't know anything about the Spartan queens, but there are a few standouts, and Gorgo is the obvious one. But, but women, so in those sayings that you referred to, and, and like the famous one, um, uh, I also think of the one Rousseau has, I think, in, um, in one of his essay on civilization. The helot comes and says, uh, you know, you know, madam, your your sons are dead. And she says, a vile slave, who won the battle? 
<laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So there's that real strong sense that Spartan women are reinforcing Spartan values. Definitely. Exactly. I mean, they are definitely the. They are the. They are, if not the first people to give the white feather. They're certainly the. They're certainly women reinforcing Spartan values and acting as the ultimate reinforcement uh, to keep to keep men in the war. Quite the opposite of the, you know, the, the famous play. Um, it's the Spartan women who are um, who are who are keeping. Spartan men in, in, at war. Yeah, absolutely. My my favorite saying of a Spartan woman is the mother who, after she found out her son had survived when everyone else had died, hitched up her skirts and said, "Do you want to crawl back in here where you came from?" Uh, and that's uh, just sort of the most withering uh, saying imaginable. Uh, and I think it's um, it it definitely gives a flavor of what Spartan women would have been like. So now we come to uh, the hardest, but also to the most fascinating subjects uh, in, in Spartan history, which is the helots. Mm. Um, they're slaves. Uh, we, we, we could fool around and call them serfs or slaves, but they're just slaves. But it's probably the easiest thing to call them is helots because they're unlike, I don't know of any other slave system quite like this. All slave systems are unique in one way or the other. Um, but this one is certainly takes the prize maybe for being the most unique. Um, how did it come about? What's the, what's the what's your theory? What's the latest theory on how the helots came about, and how were they essential to supporting Sparta? Well, the helots are fundamental to the entire Spartan way of life. If you take helots away, you can't have that this Spartan lifestyle where they all call themselves equals and have their equal plots of land and all of that because and equal food contributions for the common messes because they'd have to do work if they didn't have the helots. Uh, so uh, they've been described as the uh, the alimentary canal of Spartan society. Uh, I think in the book I referred to them as, as the Spartans as parasites uh, living off the helots because the helots work their estates, they produce uh, the food, they give half of the produce of the land to the Spartans and then live off the rest themselves. So, uh, and you're right, you could try and sugarcoat it, call them serfs, but they're, they're slaves. They are slave labor, they are unfree labor, and yes, they have some freedoms that uh, chattel slaves wouldn't have had elsewhere, but that doesn't make their life any good. It would have been as dreadful as any other slave's life would have been immediately. And there are certain uh, things. There are certain things that you know. I, I know quite a bit about American chattel slavery, and there are certain things that are just uh, outside the pale for American chattel slavery, and vice versa, of course. But uh, for example, the, 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 there's war declared between the Helots and the Spartans every year. Is that is that right? Is that or is that just is that one of our stories? Yeah, we have Aristotle as a source for that, and Aristotle doesn't make those kind of things up. No, and right. uh, yeah, so and the obvious implication of that is, uh, if you're at war with someone in ancient Greece, you can kill them without uh, incurring uh, the religious pollution that you would uh, expect to incur if you murdered someone. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is clearly giving the Spartans carte blanche to kill any helots they want to kill. Uh, and the obvious manifestation of that is the uh, the Spartan institution of the Cryptea, where yeah. young men were sent into the countryside with a knife and basic food supplies, and they were supposed to hide out during the day and then kill any helot they found out and about at night. And one of the other suggestions from the sources is that they would then go through the fields in on during the daytime and pick out the largest, scariest helot and kill him. 
And this was clearly designed to terrorize the helots into obeying the Spartans. Uh, so it's um, it's a, it's a brutal practice. Uh, it's been recently described as an act of state terror uh, by uh, by uh, by one leading expert on Sparta, and that's that's not an argument I disagree with. It, it looks and feels like state terror. Uh, the Spart and the Spartans do this to their to their slave population to keep them under control. Now, who are who is this slave population? Because people will be thinking, um, certainly modern people often think of slavery as necessarily racial. Um, yeah, well, slaves in the Greek world are normally um, prisoners of war. Right. Uh, and the average slave in Athens would have been not ethnically Greek. But the tradition about the Helots was that they were the original inhabitants of Laconia and Messenia who had been enslaved by the Spartans. So those wonderful lines of uh, war poetry by Tateus are encouraging the Spartans to defeat the Messenians and enslave them. Uh, so it's, it's, it's sort of hard to, hard to sort of feel the same way about it once you start to think about it that way, is that uh, this sort of a great work of literature is all about encouraging the Spartans to, uh, to enslave their Greek brethren uh, and, uh, and live off their labor. And the once enslaved then, these Messenians, the Messenians were in a perpetual state of, this is a perpetual state of servitude. They were, they now were of a slave class, hence Helots. Yeah, yeah. So they were, their name probably comes from the Greek word Haliskamai, which means captives. Mm -hmm. uh, so they were, uh, they were a, a class of, of captives and they were like that in Messenia from the, the around 700 through to the liberation of Messenia in 369, they were like that in Laconia for longer than that, so till after the Roman conquest. What, um, what besides food, and that's can't overestimate that, I mean, how, did, how was this distributed to the um, Spartiates? Did Spartiates own a land with helots upon it? Uh, how was this determined where their food went? Well, that's a that's a complicated uh, question that there's a messy answer to. But the uh, the Spartans have estates around Laconia and Messenia, and the produce of the land is acquired at some point in time after harvest. In, in, a, in a, there's an amount that is extracted, and that will go to to the city at Sparta itself to to uh, to to to. to to go into the common messes where the citizens ate together. There is a suggestion that some of those uh, food contributions were actually recirculated back to the Sahelots themselves. So it might not have been that they actually took all of that uh, that uh, food allocation with them at harvest time. It's uh, We don't know enough about the logistics to know how this would have worked. Mm -hmm. And what else besides growing food, acting as farmers, um, did Helots do for the Spartiates? Well, they performed the roles of slaves elsewhere in the Greek world. So we know of Helot women acting as uh, as um, as um, maids in Spartan houses. Uh, we know of uh, Helot stewards. Uh, Helots also accompanied their masters into battle. So Herodotus doesn't provide the numbers of them, but there were clearly hundreds of Helots at the Battle of uh, Thermopylae, and some of them fought and died alongside their masters. So they were the fighting, not just, uh, they were not just acting as the baggage train. They were no, some of them actually fought properly. 
and we know there are tens of thousands of them at uh, Plataea, right? In 479, and the, the final battle of... Uh, yeah, the big battle, 35,000 helots, according to Herodotus, and he explicitly states them as armed for war, which right. means they, they fought alongside their masters. And ultimately, in the 5th century, the Spartans started to free helots in large numbers as a, as a reward for serving alongside them in combat. So you end up with another class of Spartans, the uh, Neodamides, uh, which literally means the new deemsmen. Uh, it's almost like new citizens, but they're not quite citizens in that way. Well, um, let's get to Thermopylae. Uh, I have a, a translation here. And I wanted to read a, a few things from it, and I thought that, uh, given what we've been talking about, um, you could gloss it and explain how this is related to um, to what we've been talking about, to the to, the, okay. to, to Sparta. Um, he says, um, in the midst of the deliberations of the Persians, Xerxes sent a scout on horseback to spy out their number and to see what they are up to. The horsemen came galloping up to the camp and duly made his survey, although not of the whole camp, so it was impossible for him to see most of the troops who were stationed by the wall. He took stock of the men who were out in the open, with their arms and armor piled up in front of the wall, and who at the time, as it happened, were the Lacedaemonians. Some of the men the scout saw to his astonishment were exercising naked, and some were combing their hair. Keeping his eyes peeled, however, he added up their numbers, and then once he had arrived at an accurate total, galloped off and unhindered. Rather than pursuing him, everyone treated him with the utmost indifference. What do, how do you uh, explain all that? Well, I love that. I love that passage. Uh, it's, it's, um, it's, so, it's so Spartan. Uh, combing their hair, Spartans had their long hair. Um, it's explained to uh, Xerxes by Demaratus and exiled Spartan king that Spartans dressed their hair when they were, knew they were going to be risking their lives. And it's, uh, it's, it's a concept that appears in other primary sources. Um, there's a, um, a Spartan um, exile from Sparta, Clearchus, uh, ended up going to be executed by another Persian king, um, Artaxerxes, in the early 4th century BCE. And he came in contact with a Greek doctor who was at the court of Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes said, is there anything I can do for you? And Clearchus says, can I have a comb? Uh, because he wants to comb his hair before he dies. Um, that's, a, that's a very Spartan thing. And exercising, it's, it's the Spartan lifestyle. They, uh, they practice, they, they do their physical exercises even when they're on military campaigns. They just do them a bit less hard uh, than they would when they were at home. So still, they still work out. And some Spartan commanders, actually, there's one, um, Dirkilidas actually died uh, in combat uh, because he was paying too much attention to practicing athletics and didn't notice the fact that the enemy was upon him. Uh, so, so this was a very Spartan thing. And the indifference to the outsider is um, a, a, a massive sense of arrogance from the Spartans. Goes on. The king, though, was unable to appreciate yeah. the significance of what he was hearing, namely that the Lacedaemonians were readying themselves to be killed and to kill in turn as many as they were able. That's a yeah. sort of a controversial point in Herodotus, isn't it? I mean, uh, there's been a lot of ink spilt over that. Hmm. Yeah, I think um, I think Xerxes fails to realize what he's dealing with here. 
uh, he has their behavior explained to them and, and he doesn't listen. And that's part of the characterization of Xerxes in Herodotus. He, he, he gets good advice and he ignores it. So he just says, yeah, but, well, these, these men aren't really going to fight against me is, 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 his, is his feeling because he can't quite believe that the Spartans really will stand against all of his men. He gets it from Demaratus, son of Ariston. Who is, who is Demaratus? He is, um, well, he was the co-king of Leonidas's half-brother, Cleomenes, and he was deposed uh, because uh, he got into, uh, a, into a dispute with Cleomenes, and Cleomenes was able to uh, uh, convince uh, the Spartans to depose um, uh, Demaratus by, uh, by getting the oracle at Delphi to confirm that he was illegitimate. And not not meant to be, not shouldn't have been the, his co-king. Demaratus says to Xerxes, "Rest assured, should you defeat them and their fellows still in Sparta, my king, then no other people in the world will take up arms against you and stand in your path, for you are about to attack the fairest kingdom in all of Greece, yes, and the bravest men." To Xerxes, however, these claims seemed wholly incredible, and the second time he demanded to know how such a tiny force of men was going to fight his own army. O King Demaratus answered, "Treat me as you would any liar if things do not turn out for me as you state for you as I state." But nothing that he said could make Xerxes believe him. Well, there's the there's the unbelieving, not refusing to listen Xerxes. Um, is that an example of laconic statements? At least the second second one. I think I think Demaratus comes across as a proper Spartan. Yeah. Uh, he's uh, he he's he speaks bluntly, uh, and when the king gets angry at him, he just says, "Well, you told me to tell you the truth, so I've told you the truth. If you don't like it, um, lump it." Uh, so uh, he's he's quite forthright in his dealings with uh, with Xerxes, definitely. And Herodotus comes to the battle. Um, Xerxes sends the Persian immortals forward. And when they joined the battle with the Greeks, however, it was the same story as before, because they were fighting in a confined space, using spears shorter than those wielded by the Greeks, and unable to press home their weight of numbers, they enjoyed no more success than the Median divisions had done. The Lacedaemonians fought in a manner that richly merits description, and left no one in any doubt that, while they were men who really knew what they were about, their opponents were just amateurs. Every so often, for instance, they would turn tail and give the impression of mass flight, and then, after the barbarians had raised a cry of triumph at the sight of their retreat, rushed forward to attack them with a great hullabaloo and caught up with them. The Lacedaemonians would wheel around to confront the barbarians and inflict such terrible damage upon the Persians. Once they had done so, there was no counting the number who fell. Yeah, um, it's, um, it's, it's our clear description of the fighting at Thermopylae. I'd love Herodotus to provide another seven or eight pages uh, <laughs> of information. But yeah, the, 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 the various contingents of the Persian army hurled themselves on the Spartans and their allies, and they made no impact. Uh, and I love the story of the, the sort of the feigned retreat of the Spartans, and then they reform uh, and cut them down again. And I love the fact that he says it was a repeated tactic that had happened more than once. Yeah. Uh, exactly. with the Persians for it multiple times. Yeah. And, and anyone who's sort of tried to understand how hoplite warfare works knows that you couldn't possibly do that if you weren't well organized. Uh, uh, and you couldn't possibly do that if you weren't well trained. One thing we haven't, we didn't talk about so thus far is Spartans' religion. Here's a, a passage. This is t uh, 219 in the text. Um, yep. 
This is, uh, we've been tracking the epialtes, is that nightmare? Um, and he's going, nightmare, yeah. he's going to take the force around uh, the, uh, the, 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 the blocking force at Thermopylae. And meanwhile, uh, Herodotus tells us, the first of the Greeks in Thermopylae knew of it was when the soothsayer Megistius, after ex- inspecting the entrails of the sacrificial victims, declared that death would be coming upon them with the dawn. It's uh, reminiscent of what happens at Plataea, where there's like an endless investigative entrails prior to prior to finally deciding when to attack or how things are going to happen or or what's it. Uh, what is it with Spartans and entrails and soothsayers and and their approach to this this. Yeah, the, the the Spartans have a reputation for being overly pious, uh, and and a Spartan army going into going on the march would have looked like it was accompanied by a small zoo, uh, because <laughs> they had a host of sacrificial animals to uh, to sacrifice uh, to get um, the right messages from the gods. They had animals that they'd sacrificed before a battle. They had the goats that they sacrificed after their victory. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, they were, they were big on sacrificing and they wouldn't do, uh, they wouldn't act unless they had the gods on their side for sure. And so, uh, so, um, yes, it's, 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 it's a fundamental part of the king's job. Uh, and I already mentioned the kings are, are priests, uh, and part of the priestly function is, is sacrificing the animals and looking at the entrails and inspecting the liver and seeing, seeing what the results are. And it's quite obvious sometimes the inspection is carefully orchestrated, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's there's one example where the Spartan king, Agesilaus, has no cavalry. It would be a disaster to attack at the point where he is founding himself and he inspects the, the victim and, oh, yeah, the gods aren't on our side now. We'll have to withdraw. Uh, so uh, sometimes the gods were clearly uh, a good excuse uh, to, uh, to uh, allow a, a tactical retreat uh, or to not attack at that particular moment. I hadn't realized it uh, until um, I was rereading for, the, for, for this, uh, prepping for the conversation, that um, one of the three inscriptions at Thermopylae that, that Herodotus describes is actually to Megistia, to the soothsayer. Um, yes. And he says this commemorates the famous Megistius killed by the Medes once they had crossed the, well, yeah, the Spercaeus, a seer who knew full well that the fate was nearing but could not bear to abandon Sparta's leaders. Um, he's like the, he's the only individual that's memorialized as such. Leonidas isn't, uh, but the the the, the, uh, the soothsayer is. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, well, the others were meant to be there. That was their yeah, duty. I, whereas, the, whereas the the seer, uh, he went above and beyond the call of duty, so he gets his own uh, his own memorial. Yeah, and also, uh, and, and it's a very a very Spartan duty. Um, sense of uh, of what he has to do. I could not abandon yeah. ab- abandon the other Spartans. Um, this is, uh, of course, and finally, we have to conclude with the uh, the great uh, some some of the great lines. Um, where he says, um, "Brave though all the Lacedaemonians and Thespians showed themselves, the man who proved himself the bravest lot was a Spartiate called Dionysus." I think that's right. There is a witticism attributed to him, which he made before battle was joined with the Medes. So teeming are the barbarians, someone from Trachis warned him, that when they fire their bows, their arrows blot out the sun. That is the measure of their number. Dionysus, however, far from being unnerved by this, instead took so little account of the vast multitudes of the Medes, they only commented, well, my friend from Trachis, this news of yours is all to the good. If the Medes hide the sun, then we shall fight them in the shade. 
This was typical of a whole number of pathogens described to Dionysus of Lacedaemon and by which he is still remembered to the present. Yeah, it's a wonderful line. Um, I'd love it to be true. Yeah. Uh, the fact that Herodotus reports it makes it more reliable than some of the some of the other one-liners that are delivered uh, that are attributed to Spartans. It's 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 very in keeping with the way Spartans were taught to speak. Uh, it's a it is a fantastic line. Um, I I'm happy to report it at various points in time. <laughs> um, let's conclude. Um... You got interested in Thermopylae uh, when you were 12, and I suppose yeah. you've been through several phases of interest in Sparta, uh, probably, you know, 12-year-old romantic enthusiasm. Uh, yeah. I bet you when you first discovered what life amongst the helots was like, that was an inflection point in your uh, in your relationship with Sparta. Um, Definitely. <laughs> I bet you remember. When was that, by the way? Do you remember? I remember finding out properly about the Helots when I was about 18. Yeah. yeah. And that was a, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, these Spartans seem quite less admirable. Yeah. But you're still studying it. And I, I'm curious, um, what have you learned from Sparta in the course of studying it? And it, it might be a strange question to ask a historian, but, I mean, you've spent a lot of time with them, besides your classicist. So, you know, you, 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 you th think about things differently anyway. Um, you, you translate poetry as well. So um, what have you learned from Sparta? I think the whole point for me for history is, is, is twofold. One of them is trying to work out what actually happened. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing for me is, well, there's three things. There's that. There's trying to work out what people were like and trying to get into their headspace for good or bad. And the other thing is 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 thinking about things, and it's the game of trying to work out how the world works and and reliability of sources and and probability. And I think with Sparta, they're weird. So trying to get into their headspace is a is a genuinely fascinating process. Uh, I love that period of, of of history. So trying to work out what was going on in classical Greece keeps me excited, but. Trying to work out those those bigger questions: Can you know the answer to something? What was what possibly was a helotry like? How did it come about? Is it possible to even answer those questions? Those those things keep me excited. We conclude. Uh, you suggest in the book at the end uh, that uh, a great poem by Caffey, also called Thermopylae, uh, uh, is uh, uh, is where you end the book. Um, do you do you have that in front of you? I do, yeah. Could you could you read it for us? Uh, I'd be interested to hear you okay. read it rather than me, and then we'll talk a little bit about it because I, I think it's interesting, useful to have a, a little poet, a poem, commenting upon the, what we've been talking about. Okay, um, I've got our version here in front of me. I, I think it's not necessarily my preferred version. Actually, I think I can grab my preferred version. Go right ahead. If I can, if I can get it. Um... No, I've actually got only got some of the lines from mine, so I'll go from this one here. Uh, Honour is due to those who are keeping watch, sentinels guarding their own Thermopylae, never distracted from what is right to do and right to be, in all things virtuous, but never so hardened by virtue as not to be. Compassionate, available to pity, generous if they're rich, but generous too, doing whatever they can if they are poor. Always true to the truth, no matter what, but never scornful of those who have to lie. And even more honour is due when, keeping watch, 
they see that the time will come when Ephialtes will tell the secret to the Medes and they will know the way to get in through the goat path. That's such so great. Um I, I love Kavapi's poem, and it's and the it's the it's the I love the honor to those who 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 have their own Thermopylae and know what their uh, know know what their duty is. It's very Spartan to the um, true to the truth, but not scornful of those who have to lie. Mm-hmm. And 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 the fatality of the whole thing at the end is that even more honor is due to them when they know. They know that they will, and that the Ephialtes will come through in the end, uh, and and it's the way in which he says that they know Ephialtes is coming. Ephialtes coming isn't a surprise to them. They know they're going to be betrayed, but they do it anyway. Uh, and and I think that's one of the things that always gets me, sort of, it appeals to the twelve-year-old boy in me with uh, with the Spartans in that they may well have known that they were going to die. Mm-hmm. And they may well have expected that they were going to be stabbed in the back too, but they did it anyway. Yeah. I, um, you know, there's a long discourse in, um, in Western philosophy, well, at least William James, if not earlier, talking about the moral equivalent of war and trying to imagine um, how can we use the energy and the, the courage of Thermopylae for other things. Um, it uh, would seem to me, I'm believably sad if to have uh, Thermopylae you have to have Helots. Mm. I don't think you have to, but to me um, as I, you know, reading your book and thinking about it, that's one of the things I've been meditating upon is um, do we only have uh, great, even doomed doomed defeats, which you know, in a way Thermopylae gave, bought precious time for the rest of Greece. Um, do we only get that through doing evil <laughs> um and that's one of uh do, do these things always come in pairs and that's one of, that's one of the things it's it's uh, perhaps not a historical thought but it's what's uh, what i've been left with after reading your book well i i don't disagree with you at all on that one it's uh, it is a, it is a shame it would be wonderful if we could just celebrate the the 300 spartans but we can't uh we can't overlook the horrors of Spartan society and and the evils of Spartan society, and that's uh, I was thinking the other day uh, about um, Goldhill describes the the Spartans as standing on the right side of history, uh, and he said a little of Leonidas um, lies in the fact that he can he could do whatever he whatever he liked whenever he liked, uh, and yeah, the Spartans stood on the right side of history, but too often they didn't stand on the right side of history. Uh, so uh, you can't overlook that. But um, it shouldn't stop us from celebrating what they did do at Thermopylae. Certainly not two and a half thousand years, almost precisely since what they did at Thermopylae as well. My guest today has been Andrew Bayless. He's the author of The Spartans. Andrew, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you very much for having me. I've enjoyed it immensely. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes, and if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.